Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. So, it's really good to see you. Back in uh, 2011, you may recall, uh, a man named Harold Camping, who started a ministry called Family Radio, uh, predicted that the Lord would come back on May 21st, 2011. And the followers of his ministry, many of them, sold everything they had and invested in traveling the country in vans and in other ways to prepare for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ on May 21, 2011. In fact, I can remember seeing one of these vans on the freeway when I was driving, and it said, Judgment Day is coming. The Bible guarantees it, May 21, 2011. Then it gave the call letters to the uh, uh, radio station and some other information. And I remember thinking, well, I think it's safe to make a very expensive dinner reservation on May 21, Because the Lord's not coming back on May 21, because they just decided that he would. After May 21 passed and there was no second coming of Jesus, uh, Harold Camping changed the date to October 21, 2011. And again, atheists, people who don't know Christ, mocked Christians, mocked followers of Jesus. Uh, uh, In fact, uh, someone started a business offering to take care of the pets Uh, that the Christians left behind when they were taken up at the second coming of Jesus. They would take care of their pets for a fee after they were gone to be with Jesus. That's the kind of mockery that the Christians, at least these Christians, were enduring. So how do I know that it was okay and safe for me to make dinner reservations for May 21st or for October 21st? How did I know that the Lord would not be coming back on that day, those dates? Uh, It's because Jesus himself said, no one knows the date when I'm coming back. No one, no one, no one. Not Harold Camping, no one. Jesus made it very clear that only the Father in heaven knows the date in which he's coming back. We live in a day where we're looking forward to the coming back of the Lord Jesus. These are sometimes our scary days. Sometimes they're days in which we don't know what's going on and and, uh, we can be... um, looking forward to something that will rescue us from these difficult days in Russia, in Ukraine, and in uh, Romania, in Poland. But the Lord will come back when he's good and ready. Every generation of Christians, if you study church history, every generation of Christians thinks that it's their generation. Their generation is the generation in which the Lord will return. And maybe he will return in in this generation. Maybe he will return in three weeks. We don't know. But it may be 300 years. We just don't know. Now, Harold Camping... As I mentioned earlier, the starter of this ministry, in fact, you can still listen to family radio. There's an app. They have good teaching. They have good music. It's really a good good thing to do. Harold Camping was brokenhearted over his failed prediction. He shouldn't have been in that territory in any case. And he died in December of 2013 at the age of 92, heartbroken and frustrated and said himself that his predictions were sinful and should not have been done. And he was right. I don't want to judge Harold Camping other than to say that this is what happened. But there's a lot of fascination these days with studying end times, studying the Revelation, studying Daniel, and that's okay. But my question to you and to me and to us is together, is that what Jesus wants us to do, is to be hyper-focused on the last things? 
It's good to know, it's good to edify yourself, it's good to understand, but is that what he wants us to do right now as a major focus of our time on earth? And I would say no, it's not. There's other things he wants us to do. And by the way, uh, how many times do you hear people interested in learning and really focusing their lives on learning about suffering, uh, perseverance under trials, um, grief, uh, stewardship and giving, all these things that are spiritual dis- dis- disciplines, prayer and fasting, all these things that we really should be focused on in our Christian life as we, w- as we watch and we wait for him. We're going to go through some uh, parables from Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. You remember what a parable is. The Lord Jesus, the master teacher, the great, great, perfect teacher, of course, often spoke in parables. <clears throat> a parable is simply this. It's a, it's a simple word picture designed to illustrate a profound spiritual truth. A simple word picture designed to illustrate a profound spiritual truth. Jesus used parables oftentimes. He said um, in, in, uh, in the book of Mark, they spoke, people asked him, his disciples asked him, why do you speak in parables? And he explained to them, well, it's for those who want to learn and understand, more light will be given to them. But for those who don't want to understand, even the basics will be hidden from them. He spoke in parables quite consistently. Our heart focus is to be on three things I believe the Scripture teaches us from these uh, three parables we'll be looking at. There's one really brief one, a longer one about a parable of the virgins or the bridesmaids, and a parable of the talents. We'll go through all three of those. Uh, Before we get specifically into the text, let's pray. Father, this is a brand new day, and we gather to worship you as people all over the globe, some ahead of us in time, some behind in time. Uh, uh, Today is a day commonly set aside for worship of you corporately in your church and individually in expressions of your local church. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand your word to live by it, to follow it, and to focus our lives upon what you want us to focus on for your glory and for the good of your church, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew 24, starting in verse 45. Matthew 24, starting in verse 45. The Lord's gonna teach us how to be wise, how to be wise He's just been arguing with the Pharisees, as usual, arguing with the Pharisees, trying to tell them what's going to happen and what's wrong with their theology, what's wrong with their lives. He pronounces woes upon them, which is a severe grief. He says, woe unto you, woe unto you. He weeps over Jerusalem because Jerusalem will not repent and come to him like a mother who gathers her chicks, a hen gathers her chicks around her. He complains, and rightly so, that Jerusalem is not coming to him He foretells the destruction of the temple. He is on the Mount of Olives. It's called the Olivet Discourse, starting in 24 uh, through 2546. He talks about the coming of the Son of Man, the lesson of the fig tree, and he launches into this brief parable first. In verse 45, he asks, Who then is the faithful and wise servant? And by the way, each character in a parable represents something else. And I want you to think as I'm reading this very short parable first, who is the servant, who is the master? Because they represent individuals. So let's read this. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? 
Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the end of the first parable. So who's the wise servant? Who are the servants in this parable? It's us. Supposedly us, those who know and love him, or at least seem to know and love him, we are servants. And I want you to know in, this, in these parables that we're going to read, servant is a roundy way to say slave. We don't like to think of slaves, ourselves as slaves. It's a very sensitive topic in our culture, but the fact is that in the original language is servant meant slave. The master owns you. In our case, you have been bought with a price. The price was Jesus' blood and body, sacrificed. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Each of us, if we know Jesus, is his slave. He owns us, which is a lot stronger than thinking I'm a servant. I'm a slave. He owns me. If you know Jesus, he owns you. You are not your own. You don't get to do just whatever you want. But the, the good part is that he is good, and he is gracious, and he's kind. He's loving. But don't mess with him. The wise servant, remember biblical wisdom is skill for living. The one who is wise, one who is skilled for living, he says, who would then, who would be identified as the faithful and the wise servant whom his master has set over his household? Who's the master? It's the Lord himself. He's speaking of himself, God. Who is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? This is dailiness of life giving out food at the proper time. If you're a parent, you know what this is like. If you run your own household, you know what this is like. Every day, every day, every day, you set out food at the proper time, you get things going, you take care of your business. Verse 46, who's the blessed one? Well, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. When he comes back, when the master comes back and finds the servant doing what he wants, he's blessed. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions, not just little things, the wise servant is rewarded by the master for his faithfulness, his daily stewardship of life. Jesus is telling us to take care of our daily stuff. Whatever your responsibilities are, just be faithful in doing it and be wise. Have skill for living. Do it well. It's very basic. It's very simple, but we get tired of the basic and simple, don't we? Another day, another work, another school, another class, more homework, more bills to pay, write the check, send the money, But as we are faithful and wise in doing the work he's given to us, he's pleased with us. And he'll set us over all of his possessions in time. Verse 48, on the other hand, if that wicked servant, if a wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. In other words, he takes his responsibilities and he does all kinds of bad things with it all kinds of flesh-seeking pleasures, whatever they might be, the worldly things that are tempting us all the time. He's a wicked servant, beating fellow servants, berating, reviling, physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it might be. In this picture, it's pretty clear he's physically beating fellow servants, not, not bosses, but fellow people on his horizontal plane. 
And he eats and drinks with drunkards. He wastes the things that the Lord's entrusted to him, the master has entrusted to him. There's going to be fruit for that. The master will come on a day when he does not expect him. That's the ticket. We don't know when he's coming back. He's not shared it with us. We don't know. He will come back in a surprising and sudden manner. Jesus is telling this parable to protect us from presumptive sins. He's not coming back. I'm going to live until I'm 105. I'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. I'll be fine, and I'll do what I want. Thank you very much. But the master says he's coming back on a day when the wicked servant does not expect him at an hour he does not know. And verse 51 is pretty rough now, isn't it? This is Jesus talking. The master will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place where the hypocrites go, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of Jesus. This is the word of God right here. The Lord says the master will come back and will take that wicked servant, cut him into pieces, and put him with the hypocrites, people who pretend to know the master, who pretend to serve the master, but they're serving themselves. Hypocrites. People who are not wise in stewardship are not faithful. And he'll throw them into hell, into separation eternally from himself. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Unless we be confused, weeping and gnashing of teeth is not regret and sorrow over my own sin. It's a anger, the gnashing of teeth. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be here. My master is wicked. He's evil. I hate him. Well, that's why you're where you are. You didn't love the master. You were a wicked servant. Jesus calls us to be wise in our stewardship skillfully handling the responsibilities he's given to us every day for his good and his glory because the world is watching and he's watching as well. So that's the, uh, the first parable, wisdom and stewardship. The second one, known as the parable of the ten virgins or the parable of the ten bridesmaids, also known as Matthew 25. And I'll just read through it. Uh, that would be verses 1 through 13, the parable here. And remember, the characters represent people. Jesus is teaching here. The kingdom of heaven will be like, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go gather to the dealers, go rather to the dealers, and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins, virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So ten virgins, five were wise, five were foolish, the bridesmaids, Five wise, five foolish. Who's that? That's us waiting for the bridegroom. Who are the, who's the bridegroom? Jesus. We're waiting for the second coming of Jesus. 
Five wise, five foolish. This is not the first time, and this is the second time in this set of parables, but previous to this, he's talking about two women who are doing this, and two, uh, one is there, one takes up, one is left behind when the Lord comes back. There are people who we think are believers in Jesus, but they really aren't. You can only examine for yourself what you are and what category you're in. But the kingdom of heaven, he says, is like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. They're all excited. Five were foolish, five were wise. The foolish took their lamps but had no oil, no reserves, nothing to endure over time. Wise ones, remember, skill for living. They knew how to do this. They prepared. They were thinking people. The wise ones knew what they should do. They took flasks of oil with their lamps. They were ready for a delay because they did not know when he'd come back. Verse 5, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. All of them, the wise and the foolish, they became drowsy, they slept, and that's okay, that's just a physical need. But at midnight there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Now Jesus is coming when we don't expect, and it's going to be sudden. Now, uh, Daniel and Hayden have been married for about a year, right? Okay, then this is fresh in your memory. What would happen if you had showed up on your wedding day at midnight? You'd be way late or way early, right? One or, the er- one or the other, way late or way early, but you'd be totally unexpected. Your bride would have been very surprised if you showed up at midnight or mad if you were late, right? That's the point. That's the point. Jesus says, you don't know what I'm coming. At midnight, they're awakened by the bridegroom is suddenly there. Here he is. Let's go. Let's go out to meet him. Here he is. Verse 7, then all of them, all of the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. They got them ready. They were lighting them. But the foolish said, uh-oh, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. The, uh, uh, but the wise answered, saying in verse 9, since there will be not enough for us and for you, go gather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom did arrive, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. When I was a new believer, I... I came out of a Roman Catholic tradition, and when I was a new believer in Jesus, I was at a Catholic Mass, and uh, in the homily, which is just a short sermon in the Catholic tradition, the homily, the priest was reading this, uh, this parable, I'll never forget it, and everything was very much according to the Scriptures until this part. When the bridegroom comes, and those who are ready went in with him to the marriage feast, the door was shut. The other virgins in verse, verse 11 came along also late, and they said, Lord, open to us. And then the priest said this. He said, so Peter and Jesus are sitting around a campfire. And uh, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, what do you think the bridegroom did? And Peter said, Lord, I know you so well. The bridegroom let them in. And Jesus said, you're right, Peter. The bridegroom let them in. And I remember thinking, you know, I don't think that sounds right. I don't know why, but I don't think that sounds right. Samuel Rutherford, a reformed uh, theologian from the 1600s, he was one of the great reformers, said the, the, those who believe in Jesus, those who have Jesus, can discern his voice among a thousand others. They can discern his voice among a thousand others. Well, even though I was a baby believer, I discerned that wasn't his voice. And so I got home and I read this and I thought, yeah, he turned that parable on its head. He made it say something that it does not say at all. The door is not open wide to anybody and everybody, the foolish, spiritually foolish, and the spiritually wise. We have to choose. 
Sometimes those in our midst are those who don't really know him and don't really love him. So the door was shut. In verse 12, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you, do not, for you know neither the day nor the hour again. His point is we don't, we don't know when he's coming back. We do know what he wants from us. The first parable, he wants us faithful in our daily stewardship, our daily care for the things he's entrusted to us. And in this one, it's faithfulness in waiting for him. Just patiently waiting, not demanding, not saying, I know when the date is, I know what's going to happen because you don't. I don't. And he may come back tomorrow or even today, which would be fabulous. We'd love that. But it may be hundreds of years. We just don't know. He wants us to be faithful and to be ready so that when he comes, we can say, I'm ready, Lord. I'm ready. I'm not sad you're here. I'm delighted because I'm going with you. And the last parable, the parable of the talents. This is, deals with faithfulness, faithfulness in working for gain. Now, we don't want to be confused. Working for gain in the Lord's economy, not in man's economy. Working for gain, the picture here is about money, but the parable ultimately is not about money. It's about working in God's economy for what he says is valuable. The world says, oh, that's worth about $500,000, and the Lord says, no, that's worth about a nickel. That's worth about 10 cents in my economy. It's the Lord's economy that we need to focus on. What he says is important. So let's go through this. Remember these Characters represent a real person, represent someone that um, we should take care to think of as a real person. But it's a picture to illustrate a deep and profound spiritual truth. For it will be like, in other words, the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went out and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, and saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. In verse 22, he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servants. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew to you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has, five, who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given." 
and we will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, the same picture at the end. He separates people. He separates them. The man going on a journey, who's that? Well, that's the Lord. And the servants, the slaves, that's us, right? Now, I want you to rethink about what we mean when we say talent. In this culture, in this text, talent doesn't mean ability. It means it was a measurement of, uh, uh, of weight. In the Old Testament, it was about 75 pounds of weight of anything. It was a talent, a talent of a gold or a talent of something. It was a unit of measure. Uh, in this context, context, the talent was about 20 years of labor, 20 years worth of labor. That was what a talent was worth. So let's extrapolate this out so we get a good picture of how much we're talking about. Let's say uh, uh, $50,000 could be a round number. Some of us make more, some of us make less, but about $50,000 would be a number for one year of labor, let's say, for example. $50,000 times 20 years, one talent, remember, is worth 20 years of labor. $50,000 in 20 years is $1 million. So he gave the first servant five talents, $5 million. Here, Mr. Slave number one, here's $5 million. What does that tell you about the master? He's immeasurably rich, incalculably rich. Just has it ready to go. Here's $5 million of my money, my stuff. You take care of it for me while I'm gone. That's what the Lord's saying to us. What you have is mine. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything you have, he says, is mine. Use it properly. Use it properly for me and my people, my people, us, the church. Use it properly. Use it for good according to my economy, not the world's economy. Okay, so with that as a backdrop, in verse 15, to one he gave five talents, about $5 million. Remember, 20 years labor, about, let's say 50,000 years, just as a round number, would equal about a million. He gave him five talents, let's say it's $5 million. It's an estimate. He gave the first guy $5 million. To another one he gave <clears throat> two talents, about $2 million. He just <laughs> throwing money around. It's ridiculously great amounts of money. Five million, two million, and to another uh, one talent, one million. He gave all these things that he owns, each according to his ability. <clears throat> now, don't be jealous of people who have less ability or more ability than you do. Don't envy those who have more ability or, or, or scorn those who have less ability. It doesn't matter. What the Lord is looking for is faithfulness. Just read and you'll, you'll get the sense of this if you haven't gotten it already. He's given these talents according to their ability. He made the servants. He's going to give the servants each according to their ability, according to what he thinks they can do with it. And then he went away. He left. So these, these three servants, these slaves, are going to be doing business while he's gone. Business in a general sense. They're going to be faithfully using the resources he's entrusted to them because it's his stuff. So in verse 16, the one who received five talents went at once and traded with them. He went at once. He got to work busily doing what the Lord Master wanted him to do. He went to work. He traded with them. He did work with them. He made five talents more. He doubled what the Master had given to him. Demonstrably improved things for the Master. In verse 17, also he who had the two talents made two talents more. He doubled the investment. Remember, see how simple this is? 
I got five, now I've got 10. I have two, now I've got two more. It's very simple word pictures, but it's easily understood. It's profound spiritual truth. In verse 18, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. That's a bad plan. The master didn't want you to hide what he had given and trusted to you to, to use. He gave you that uh, property for you to use it to multiply according to his economy. But you buried it. And how many of us bury whatever God's entrusted to us? I'm not judging anyone. But I have enough opportunity to look around God's churches all over the place and I know what it looks like. I see it all the time. And sometimes these people are just ignorant or, or discouraged or rebellious. We, we, and I think in terms of when I see someone in the church who is doing wrong and is consistent, persistently doing wrong, they're either ignorant, rebellious, or discouraged. They don't know what to do or they know what to do and they refuse to do it or they're just discouraged, they're tired, and they're really beaten down. And so we have to work with them. We have to work with them, ignorant, rebellious, and discouraged. In this case, this man was none of those three. And so he has no excuse. So the one, guy, the, one, the one man who had the one talent dug it in the ground, hit it, and didn't do anything with it. He buried the opportunity. In verse 19, after a long time, now we just learned about what to do over a long period of time with the parable of the bridesmaids. They were faithful over a long time. They were tired, they snoozed, and that's fine, but they were ready. When the, half of them were ready when the time came. But it's a long time before the master comes back. In verse 19, now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. What have you done with the material I've given to you to use for my purposes? That's the Lord speaking to us. At the judgment seat, when we are evaluated, when he evaluates our lives, in 1 Corinthians 3, gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hand, stubble. And it doesn't have to be fancy achievements. Just remember, it doesn't have to be fancy achievements. You don't need to be a fancy achiever. All you need to do is be faithful and wise and listen to what he says. Faithfulness in the dailiness of life, the ordinary things, it's okay. He likes that. He, he really likes that. He comes back in verse 19 and he, he came to settle accounts. What have you done with my stuff? In verse 20, he had received five talents, came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. Over a little? He had five million dollars. That's a little in God's eyes. The lavish exposure, the lavish gifting he's given to each of us. Lavish. And, but to him it's just a little thing. Why? Because he owns everything. He's the Lord God of the universe. He owns it all. He created everything, everything good. To him, it's just a little thing. Ah, five million, that's a little bit. What? I get to live with you in your kingdom? <clears throat> Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying, my kingdom is so rich and so amazing that you're gonna want to go there. <clears throat> you're gonna wanna be there. But when the time is right, then I'm taking you there, but not until, until I take you to my great and awesome kingdom to be with me forever. I have work for you to do. Prove yourself faithful working for his economy and his good. And he likes it. He's pleased with that. You've been faithful over a little thing. A little thing. I will set you over much. Uh, the scripture makes a clear point in principle. If you're faithful in, in a little thing, you'll be faithful in much. 
If you're faithful in a small thing and the Lord sees it, you'll be faithful in much. It works in the work life too. These principles of the Lord's economy work in real life. You're faithful in a small thing. If you're a boss or you're a manager, or, uh, you know how this works. The, the owner or the boss sees you being good and faithful in a small thing, you're almost certainly going to get more opportunity. And that's God's economy. You've been faithful over a little thing. Hmm. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. All right. Would we love to hear that? Verse 22. He also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me the two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, what do you notice? <clears throat> the commendation is exactly the same. The one who had great ability got five talents. The one who had medium ability got two talents. The one who had the least ability got one talent, still a million dollars. But the commendation for the two who had the five and the two, those two servants, those two slaves, the commendation is exactly the same. Exactly the same. There's no difference. And that's why it's so foolish to compare yourself to others in whatever capacity. Either you're better or you're less than others. Don't do that. I'm thinking of the Apostle Paul when uh, he's being hammered and criticized, and he's writing about this in 2 Corinthians. And they're just beating up on Paul. Uh, people were saying he's a false apostle, he's not as great as you, know, you guys think he is. It's, you know, they say things like in 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, um, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal appearance is disappointing and his speech is contemptible. I hate his speech, he can't talk, and he looks like a, he's nothing. He writes really well, though. He writes these great letters, but you look at him, you listen to him, eh, eh, not much. And Paul says, you know what? I don't care. In 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, uh, whether I'm paraphrasing, whether you're judged by me, by me, it's a small thing for me to be judged by you. Uh, the Lord is the one who will judge me. It's a small thing for you to judge me. That's Paul. And Paul got hammered by people who disliked the success of his ministry and disliked that he was so amazing. They were jealous. But listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, uh, we dare not to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves in comparison to himself. They're commending themselves that when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. They don't understand. What don't they understand? They don't understand how God works. They don't understand what they're supposed to do. They think it's about them. It's not about them. It's about him. It's about the master. If he's given you abilities, just use them for his glory and forget about yourself. It's such a major problem in the church, uh, in our culture. We live in such a success culture and appearance culture. It's really troublesome. But here, in the Lord's economy, uh, $5 million is so small to him. $2 million is so small. He just got in his pocket. Here's $5 million for you. Here's two for you. Here's one for you. I've just given away $8 million, and I got plenty left. That's just a little bit. That's him. Boy, if you don't want that, God, then I don't know what you're looking for. Nothing matches even in the same realm of his greatness. And the Lord is so gracious to us. He's telling simple stories to these people who are dense spiritually, like us. He's condescending to teach them, to say to them here, let me give you a simple word, word picture to show you a profound spiritual tr truth about my kingdom. Here's what it's like. Do you see? Do you see? Can you see now? And there were those who wouldn't see, refused to see. But those who wanted to see saw and were built up by it. 
Let's go to verse 24. This is where we see what happens with the one talent guy. He who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seeds. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Okay. This is harsh criticism from a worthless slave. It's not my fault. It's your fault. Master, I don't care for how you run things. I'm going to be burying what you've given me in the ground. I'm not going to use it for good. I'm not going to seek to multiply it. I'm not going to work and take spiritual risks for your glory and your good so that you may be honored. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to bury the talent. He's criticizing the master unfairly, unrighteously. You have no sense of the master being negative in any other verse except this criticism from the one slave who buried the talent in the ground. And he says in verse 25, I was afraid. Now, God has not given us a spirit of fear. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He had no power and no love for the master or his people, and he had not a sound mind. He had no good thinking, no clear thinking about what to do uh, that would please the master. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a, power, a, a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. But he's afraid. Well, he should be afraid because he's not, he doesn't love the master. He doesn't care about the master. He cares about just protecting himself. It's scary to use your talents that God's given you, your, the materials God's given you and entrusted to you. It can be scary to use it for good, it's, but it's the way it works. And he honors effort on his behalf to bring him praise and glory. So he hides the talent in the ground. He gives the master back what he was owed, what, he, um, what it was his. And verse 26, here's the master's response. The master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You ever seen a sloth move? <laughs> they don't move. If I was speaking and I'm a sloth, that's as fast as I'll go. That's what the servant is like. Uh, I, I saw a commercial. I don't mean to pick on the government. Well, maybe I do. But there was a, uh, a commercial where the man goes to the Department of Motor Vehicles, you know? He's waiting in line, and there's lines of people waiting to get their driver's licenses renewed and all these things. And running the booth at the Department of Motor Vehicles are like 10 sloths. And they're just not moving very well. Now, that's a picture of this man. In addition to his wicked heart, he moves slowly because he's afraid and he doesn't really care about the master's glory. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed. He's asking the question rhetorically. He's, he doesn't expect an answer, but you think that's true? He says, you think that's true? You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gathered where I scattered no seed. Now, by the way, this is a picture of the Lord. Is, is it true that the Lord God reaps where he does not sow and gathers where he scattered no seed? He's lavish in his, his blessing of us. He's lavish in giving us all kinds of good things. The fact that I can speak and you can listen and that we can see and hear and we have rain, which is a blessing, by the way, a blessing. The fact that we have all these things, that we have lights and we can eat and we're not hungry, we're not starving, is a blessing from the Lord. He's not stingy with us. He blesses us with all manner of blessings, both physically and spiritually and mentally. In verse 27, well, that's what you think of me, verse 26. In verse 27, well, then if that's what you thought of me, you should have at least invested my money with the bankers. And at my return, at my coming, I would have received what was my own with interest. There would have been some good that came from my entrustment to you of the things, these things. 
So take the talent from him. Take that one million from that guy and give it to this one who has the $10 million, the 10 talents. Everyone who has more will be given. He who has an abundance, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's not harsh. It's reality of the Lord's economy. I keep repeating this about the Lord's economy. It's what the Lord values. If you step out in faith and take what the Lord's entrusted to you and use it for his glory, for his benefit, for the benefit of his people in this church or elsewhere, if you use it, he's pleased. Even if it doesn't result in doubling. But you know, you don't know the result, whether it's doubling or not. Maybe it's quadrupling. You don't know because he's not telling. Sometimes we think our works are worthless. I've taught this child 25 times to do this, and I'm trying to be faithful, but he's not getting it. And he's rebellious, and he's not listening to me. And how many mothers or fathers can relate to that? Well, how many times can the father relate to us saying, oh, I've taught Gordon this 25 times, and he still is not getting it. I'm glad he's patient with me, and he's patient with you. But as you work for his good to multiply the things that he's entrusted you with, faithfulness in working for good gain, he's pleased with that. And he says to take the talent away from this one and give that talent to the one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has will more be given. And this is not a name it and claim it health and wealth gospel. This is, a, again, I'm gonna say it again, it's the Lord's economy. It's not about money. It's about other things that he cares about. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. Everyone who has will more be given, more closeness to the master, more opportunities to serve him, more fruitfulness, more gain for him. Not for you, but for him. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. He's a false believer. He's not a good slave. He doesn't belong with the others. Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, I don't deserve this. Gnashing, gnash, 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 and, we, gnash and weeping at my fate. Angry about it. That's what hell is like. It's, it's interesting when people say, I want to go to hell because that's where my friends will be. Yeah, well, they don't know what they're speaking about. They don't have any clue. Hell is not a place of fellowship. It's a place of loneliness. And urgings that you indulged in in this earthly life will never be satisfied in hell. They'll just be increased, but without any temporary satisfaction whatsoever. That's part of hell. You don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. And the Lord makes it very clear how we can please him. So let's take some very general principles. These are not surprises based upon the text. The Lord wants our faithfulness. He wants us to focus on faithfulness. Whatever he's given to you, use it wisely for his good, for the love of his people, for the care of the church, and for others to teach them about Jesus. He will reward it. He will. Uh, don't compare yourselves to others. Don't be worried about what others get. Remember uh, in John chapter 21, <laughs> I'm sorry, this, this strikes me as amusing. Uh, the resurrected Jesus in John 21 is talking to Peter, you know, who had failed. He had denied Christ three times. And then Jesus renews him and uh, asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter affirms, yes, I love you. And he's grieved by it. And then Jesus proceeds to tell Peter, this is John 21. You can check it out later. He proceeds to tell Peter, you know, um, when you're young, and I'm going to paraphrase this, when you're young, you went where you wanted to go. But when you're old, uh, someone else is going to dress you and someone's going to take you where you don't want to go. And so Peter you can imagine Peter, lovable, impetuous, vocal Peter. He's not crazy about that prophecy about his life, right? When you're old, someone else is going to address me. And, 
and they'll be dragging me where I don't want to go. And he says, he looks at John, the other apostle, John, he says, what about him? What's his fate, Lord? And Jesus got mad. Jesus said, if I want him to stay until I come, what is that to you? You follow me, Jesus said. Don't do it, Peter. Stop it. I may want John to live forever, but what is that to you? You could be concerned about your relationship with me, Peter, not about John's relationship with me so much. Now, maybe you can help John in some ways to disciple him or he can disciple you, but you think about your relationship with me. If I want him to stay until I come, what is that to you, Peter? He yells at Peter. Don't compare yourself to others. As I said, in, uh, quoting 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that's, if you do that, you're not with understanding. The Lord wants a return from his entrustment of his riches to us, however small we think it is. He will evaluate the work, whatever I have done for him, whatever I have done for him, he'll evaluate it, whether it's gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hand, stubble. It will be evaluated. It'll, uh, there'll be a fire. You can read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There'll be a fire, and the, the material of our life that remains is the gold, silver, and precious stones. Work for him and no one else. Work for him and no one else. If you work for someone else, you're going to be disappointed. I, I, I remember an account of a, a preacher that I used to know. He's, he's since uh, uh, died and gone to heaven. But the preacher was sharing about a, a woman who was serving in the kids' ministry. And she said, I'm tired of this, Pastor. The kids don't listen to me. I can't tell when I'm speaking. You know, their eyes are all over the room. They're, I don't know what they're thinking. I don't have any clue. I don't think they're getting anything out of it. And so I quit. And he said, well, who are you doing this for? And she didn't answer. And she says, well, I know you wouldn't be pleased. You wouldn't be pleased with my failure. And he says, you don't know. Uh, you don't know that it was a failure. You don't know what is soaking into that little child's mind that five years later they may come back and say, do you remember I, I learned this from you? He says, you don't know. You can't tell. Sometimes they're listening and you can't even see it on their faces. Can you relate to that, Roger and Cheryl? Yeah. Sometimes it soaks in and you can't even, you, you were listening, really? Well, that's a great blessing. He said, if you were doing this for me, you quit. But you don't have a reason to quit. I know you, I know your life. You don't have a reason to quit. But if you're doing this for me, then go ahead and quit. But if you're doing it for Jesus, you better do it for Jesus and not for me. Are you doing this for me or for him? That's the ticket. Whatever you do in your life, if you do it for people, you're going to be disappointed because uh, people are uneven. All of us, each of us are uneven. So work for him and no one else. Work for him and no one else. The first parable, the right stewardship and daily living. The second parable, waiting patiently no matter how long it takes and doing what you're supposed to do over a long window of time. The dailiness of life. I'm tired of it. I know you are, so am I. And the parable of the talents, working for gain in accordance with his economy, not what the world says, because the world doesn't know and they don't appreciate us. And they don't appreciate him. And just remember, millions and millions of dollars to him are like nothing. It's just a tiny little grain of sand to him who has all manner of riches. And we will know and see when we're done with this life. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. 
Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.